0: Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. For more content, visit moralrevolution.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I want to talk to you about fatherless generation. And I've really uh, been inspired probably for about five or six weeks, four or five, six weeks. And it began when we were in a prayer meeting here, just praying for the nations and I, oh, thank you so very much. And I, um, I had this vision of my son, Jason. And he was uh, in the stadium, and the stadium was just full of fathers, full of young men, I should say, full of men. And, uh, and this, this thousands of them, like this huge stadium. And they were teaching the principles of fatherhood, and they were enacting the rite of passage. And then the, the vision grew, and I began to see stadiums filling up all over America, and I immediately, right there uh, in the prayer meeting, I text my son while it was fresh in my heart, and I said, I'm having this vision of you right now while I'm, while I'm texting you that you're in a stadium, and then thousands of men are gathering, and you're teaching them about how to be a father, and he texts right back, and he said, "God, that's what God's been telling me for a year, and it's kind of the renewal of the Promise Keepers movement, but let me tell you, I feel like it's going to be even more profoundly powerful than that. You know, I got saved in the Jesus movement, which was obviously a movement of sons. And I was a part of the charismatic movement, which is obviously a movement of the Holy Spirit. And I really believe that the Lord is moving as a father, the emphasis of fathering and fatherhood. We're praying, our Father who's in heaven. And I believe that the Father is actually going to touch the world in a way that's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons. So let's just read this Malachi 4 verse, and you probably are well aware of it. Verse 5, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I don't come and smite the land with the curse. This is interesting, and I've always taught, uh, and I've heard it taught here so many times, um, about this is not just a move of fathering. This is also affecting mothers, and I absolutely believe that. But today, and in this season, I feel like the Lord is shouting for fathers to come home. And I believe that that Malachi saw a generation that was not absent of men. It wasn't if a father absent generation, it was a fatherless generation. He saw that there were fathers, that there were sons, that there were daughters, but that their hearts were not united. You know, this is the most fatherless generation in the history of America in which our fathers did not die in war. Now, for instance, in the Civil War uh, in a, a, around 1820, there, was, uh, there, there were about 31 million people on, in America, the population of America, and 800, I'm 687,000 men died in the Civil War. So you can imagine, it took two decades for our nation to not be fatherless because our fathers were dead, they were gone. But this is the most fatherless generation in the history of America in which our fathers are alive, and they're not off to war, but their hearts are at home. I want to talk a little bit about how we got here, and I just shared this. In, uh, in, in the previous um, service and Andre Van Wall, who's so very intelligent, came and talked to me about reversing the, the order. You know, in, um, in the 60s, we had the sexual revolution. And, uh, we, and in the sexual revolution, the motto of the sexual revolution was, if you can't be with the one you want, if you can't be with the one you love, Love your one you're with. And it basically said, have no morals, it doesn't matter, make no commitments, have no covenants with anyone, marriage doesn't matter, and so on and so forth. And that shifted a nation's mindset. Now, uh, how many of you understand that the world is the world (laughs) and that the world is always going to be steeped in sin until the sinners find a savior, thus, how we all got here? So, this is not any condemnation, but in My mother, she got pregnant with me in 1954, out of wedlock. And my parents immediately got married. Immediately got married. Why? Because society, there was a stigma about having children outside of marriage, in, out of wedlock, if you will, in that culture. And culture, if you will, created a positive role model or positive peer pressure for you to do from the outside what you're not yet ready to do from the inside. And therefore, people behaved morally, although they were still sinners. Am I making any sense at all? And so, it wasn't like you know the the '60s created you know a sin movement. It was like sin was already happening, but culture gave place to it and said, "This is not bad. Don't worry about it. You're not really sinning." And in and before the '60s, people did they sinned, but they knew it was sin. How many know? Fast forward to 2017. Now you can't just. Society is not even doesn't even agree about what is sin anymore. So in my mother's day, when they did something wrong, they knew it was wrong. Now they did it anyway, but they knew it was wrong. Today you have to convince people of what wrong and right are. <laughs> and so the sexual revolution had a climax in 1969 um, at uh, at um, I'm sorry, at Woodstock in August of 1969. We had the I- iconic. Woodstock, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and that became the kind of the, the icon, the climax of a decade. And we began to just have no morals, no values, and um, society began to reject anything that had to do with morality. In the midst of all that, Darwinism, which I understand now was, was actually in, injected into schools in their early 20s, Darwinism never took root in our community until the sexual revolution because in the sexual revolution people were violating their conscience and they needed a reason to not answer to God. They wanted to live like hell and not answer to heaven. And Darwinism gave Darwinism got became catalytic to the sexual revolution and the sexual revolution became catalytic to Darwinism in that Darwinism said there is no God. You weren't created in the image of God. And Darwinism gave us two things in the the 60s that became dominant. And the first one was we were taught that we were not made in the image of God, that we were no different than the animals. And how many know we hunt animals and therefore we reduced ourselves down to an amoeba, an ape, a smart, intelligent ape, and the value of humanity and the value of morality dropped. The second thing that Darwinism taught us is through the theory of evolution, is that we all came from the same species, and we came from a cosmic accident, which basically means we have no purpose. When an atheist says, what is my purpose? How many know that's kind of an incongruent question with your perceived identity? Because if I I happen through a cosmic accident, why would I have any purpose? And Darwinism said, you don't really have a purpose. And the motto of Darwinism was, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. All of these things begin to be seeded into culture, not just the church culture, but into American culture and ultimately into world culture. So what happened? What were the outcomes of the sexual revolution? What were the outcomes, if you will, of the Darwin Revolution? Well, in 1950, less than 5% of all children were born out of wedlock in America, about 4.7% of all children in America were born out of wedlock. But by 2017, that number rose by 1,700 percent. Today, 70 percent of all black children are born out of wedlock, 50 percent of all Hispanic children born out of wedlock, 39 percent of all white American children born out of wedlock. How many understand that you're beginning to see what's happening when you take away morals and values? Pretty soon, fatherlessness begins to be the result of this generation. There's a story, uh, I have the the book's name, oh, it's called, uh, uh, I think it's called Elephants and Fathers. Let me give it to you. I want to give credit to this person who wrote this. It's called Elephants and Men, and it's written by Wade Horn. And he's um, he's talking about that in South Africa, in uh, uh, Ruger, uh, what's it called? National Park. In Ruger National Park, Kruger, Kruger National Park. They, um, they began to, the, the South African elephant was going extinct, and they began to breed the South African elephant in Ruger Park. And consequently, what happened is that they began to really, really dominate the park. And there were so many South African elephants that they said, we, we got to do something because the elephants are basically taking over the park and, and you know, kind of breaking the ecosystem, there's so many of them. So they said, well, let's transport some of the elephants to another park so that we can, like, you know, spread out the population a little bit. And, you know, it's not too easy to ship an elephant. (laughs) Like UPS won't take them, you know, (laughs) for various reasons. And so the way they moved the elephants is they got these very large helicopters and they put harnesses on the elephants and they flew them to this other park. Well, one of the challenges they had is the... The, the male, the older male elephants were so heavy that the, that the harnesses kept breaking. So consequently, they said, well, let's just, it's okay, we got male elephants, we just, we'll just transport the younger male elephants over, and they transported all these elephants over to this other park. Well, within a year, this, the park began to have all these hippo hippopotamuses who were dying. They were dying all over, the, all over this, this other park. And they were like, wow, what's killing the hippopotamuses? And first they thought there was some kind of virus that was somehow injected into the environment that was killing this hippopotamuses. So they began to do some research on the dead hippopotamuses and found that they were actually speared in the side. And they thought, well, maybe their poachers are killing them, but the tusks were still there. So it just didn't make any sense. So they set up all these cameras, especially around where the hippopotamuses hang out. And they found that what was happening is these young male elephants that they had, that they had uh, in, in, introduced to the culture were becoming violent and were killing all the rhinoceroses. They weren't just killing the rhinoceros. Hippopotamuses, did I say rhinoceros? It might be rhinoceros. I probably said it wrong the first time. <laughs> well, they're killing the rhinoceroses. I said it right the second time. They were killing all, a Holy Spirit adjustment. They're probably killing the hippopotamuses too. <laughs> oh boy. Thank you, Jesus. They were killing all the rhinoceroses. And so, uh, and they were not only killing the rhinoceroses, they were also killing a lot of other animals that they are not natural predators of. And so they're like, what is going on and why is this happening? And so they started doing some experiments and they said, well, the only thing we could think of is we introduced these young elephants into the male elephants into this culture without the Adult, mature male elephants. So they 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 built some stronger uh, harnesses and introduced the adult male elephants in, back into the new park. And within six weeks, all the killing was done, and all the the destroying of the rhinoceroses were done. And the male elephants were actually teaching the uh, the large male elephants, the adult male elephants, were teaching the young male elephants how to behave. And this is it, this is really long. I'm just going to read the last. Uh, A couple lines, it says, within weeks the bizarre violent behavior of the juvenile elephants stopped completely. The older older bulls let them know that their behaviors were not elephant-like at all. (laughs) In a short time the younger elephants were following the older and more dominant bulls around while learning how to be elephants. Is that a beautiful story? I sort of hacked it in the middle there, sorry about that. We included the rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses. What is the social effect of human fatherlessness? What is the social effect of removing fathers from homes? 90% of all American inmates are now men. 75 to 90%. There's, uh, there's, there's differing, uh, uh, differing ideas about this. Uh, this particular one, but 75 to 90% of all inmates grew up without a father. I, I, I visited several websites and several different uh, studies. Some say 75%, some say 90 but no one, everyone agreed that it was 75% or above. 75% of all inmates grew up without a father. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the national average. of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the amount if you have a father in a home. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, that's 20 times the average. 80% of all rapes come from fatherless homes, that's 14 times the average. 71% 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. And by the way, none of these—I'm uh, not citing any Christian uh, venues. These are all statistics from uh, from uh, the, the Center of uh, Disease Control, from the National Principals Association report, and so on and so forth. This is just a few statistics. What happens when you remove fathers from a home? Society gets very ill. Men and women are not the same. Here we go. Put on your seatbelt, put on your seatbelt. Now, I'm just gonna warn you that we're taking off, it's gonna be a little bumpy at first. Those who are watching by Bethel TV, don't touch that knob. Men and women are not the same. In Genesis chapter 22, the Lord God, it says, in verse 22, it says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Listen to this. And the man said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Everybody say, Taken out of the man. Where was the woman? In the man. How many you know she was taken out of the man? So you can't get in touch with your feminine side if you're a man because you don't have one. Men do not have a feminine side. Women don't have a masculine side. When God said, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a suitable helper for him, first of all, let me say, the word helper, which I misquoted last time, the word helper is used 17 times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Twice for a woman, 15 times for God. God was not saying, I think you need a slave, that will help you. He was saying, no, you need someone like God to stand alongside of you. Wow, you guys are a lot more awake than this morning. I'm really going to preach now. The word suitable is even more interesting. The word, I'll make him a suitable helper. The Hebrew word suitable means to be opposite of or to be suitable for. In other words, God said, I'm going to make someone who's opposite of you. You're going to need her like you need me. And then then God took Adam and broke him in half. God, Adam wakes up, he sees the woman who used to be in him and now standing in front of him and he goes, I need you back, <laughs> let's marry. And how many you know that marry means to merge? It's not just about a ceremony, it means the two shall become one. And how many you know that God doesn't count women in a crowd after that because God said the two shall be one. So God took Adam, he broke him in half, he made someone who's opposite of him, So she corresponds to him, so he needs her. And then he said, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, for this cause, a man shall leave his mother and father. How many know that's a prophetic declaration? Adam doesn't have a mother and father. He only has God. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When Adam said a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, he wasn't saying, like, we'll move out of my house and we'll move into your parents' house. He was prophetically declaring, who will pursue who? I will pursue you, I am after you. You were born to be adored, you were born to be pursued, and I'm born to be the pursuer, I am the cultivator. I was cultivating the garden, now I intend to cultivate yours. The fear of stereotypes has created a culture that is absent of masculine and feminine roles. We're so, we're so concerned about stereotypes that we have no role models. Furthermore, the politically correct spirit is moving us towards a genderless society. And by the way, if you think that's just a preacher trying to like use shock to awaken you, just look at the curriculum that is now being introduced to the school system this month in California. They want to take out all pronouns, he and she, and they want to teach 5-year-olds that you could be a man, you could be a woman, their sex is is fluid. This is a genderless society. I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. When <laughs> I notice I laugh when I'm nervous. God creates, okay, when God creates physical distinctions, and he fashions triune attributes that synergistically enhance the strength of those characteristics. Just what I mean. When God creates a physical characteristic in creation, He never does that without uh, without it affecting their divinely their divinely placed role in life. In other words, I love what Lou's quote years ago. He said, "God doesn't take a man and give him a dream. God has a dream, and He wraps a man around Him. He wraps a woman around a dream." How many know you were created in the image and likeness of God? what God imagined you became. What I'm getting at is that God does not give you a body and then decide, well, this is what you should be. God has created you in a, a certain way, a certain gender, a certain ethnic group. He, he has something in mind. He imagines it. Then he wraps a body around it that's, that is synergistic to the vision he had when he imagined you. Are, are, are you following me? As an ex- so, as an example, when... God gave women breasts. He didn't just give them breasts. He gave them a nurturing nature. <laughs> okay, now as I go on, you've got to remember I wrote Fashion to Rain. I'm the one who stayed home and my wife went killing things. <laughs> okay, so when you get, if you get offended, you're like, okay, uh, Chris's wife hunts, he does it. Yeah, Chris's wife, you get it? You get the idea. So I am, I'm working on it right now, I'm, I'm getting. you got to rev it up before you dump the clutch, I'm just having something to say here. So when, when, when God imagined women, he gave them the capacity to breastfeed, but it's a manifestation of their God-given assignment as nurturers. Now, can men nurture? Of course they can, but who's leading this part of society? Who's leading this part of the home? Women are leading in the nurturing part of the role. Are you with me? When women's women, uh, physical capacity... Oh, I'm sorry, I read that. Women, carry a per, uh, oh. women carried every person on the planet. They gave birth to everyone, not men. So how many know that they are inherently more peaceful? Their first response to a conflict is that we'll blow you up, we'll shoot you. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because they are compassionate and peacemakers. Can men be peacemakers? Come on, yes, of course. And can men be compassionate? they better be compassionate. But how me understand that it's women who bring compassion into culture. Okay, ask yourself the question. How many wars have, men, have women started? I said none, but a historian said two, and he couldn't remember what they were. It's a true story. I'm like, okay, yes, women have probably started a war once in a while, but, but men start wars. Men are like, you, I blow you up. You don't, do, you don't do business with us, we blow you up. Women are like, oh, can't we talk about it, you know? Women are physically weaker. Now, well, well wait, don't touch that dial. <laughs> I was present when my wife gave birth to three children. Not at the same time, at different times. And I understand that they have muscles, places I have not even, you can't even work that out. So I get that women are stronger in ways, but we're not measuring those ways right now. I'm talking about that men are physically stronger. As a matter of fact, in the, in, the, uh, in the Olympics, men are 10% stronger and they're about 15% faster. It's why we have a WBA and an MBA. I, I, I'm saying in the area we're measuring. So women, from the, from the beginning of time, God created them not to be weaker, but he created them as negotiators. They are negotiators, they are peacemakers, Not peacekeepers, they are peacemakers, and they're compassionate because God created them that way. When he made them weaker than the men, he gave them a gift that's greater than men. They're also intuitive. Go anywhere and ask, hey, I'd like to speak to the intercessors. What percentage is going to be men? 20% is a big percentage. I'd like to speak to prophetic people. 80% women. Can men be prophetic? I'm working on it. Women are inherently more peaceful. The attributes of men. Men are generally physically stronger. With their physical strength, God created them with a sense of responsibility to protect, promote, and provide. To protect, promote, and provide. So God made men stronger, but He didn't just make them stronger. He caused them to have a role that women are not leading. So just think of it this way, when someone breaks into your house, like someone broke into my house, my wife just came back from a hunting trip, but I don't, I wouldn't wake her like, try your guns to think there's someone in the house. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to engage the person who breaks in our house. The man is expected to be the protector. He's expected to be the provider. He's expected to be the promoter. Are you with me? Okay. What are the Here's six side effects of fatherlessness in our culture? What happens when you remove the father from the culture? Number one, men are being feminized because mothers without fathers are raising them. Did you hear what I just said? The gender confusion of a man being raised by only a woman is helping to perpetuate homosexuality. Men are being trained out of their ability to protect, provide, and promote. Number two, abortion is the major side effect of fatherlessness because women are being impregnated by men, not fathers. I just realized this, this is less than a month ago, that that abortion is not the sin of motherhood. It's the sin of fatherlessness. How many women abort their child if the man if the if the man wants to keep it? I know there's a percentage, but it's very low. Number two. The absence of fatherhood is creating behavioral tolerance and lack of discipline. Let me say it again. The, the absence of fatherhood is creating behavioral tolerance and a lack of discipline. Uh, uh, finish this statement for me. Mothers. You wait till your father gets home. <laughs> oh, you're all stereotyping people, aren't you? What I'm getting at is fathers bring a level of discipline They teach the family. This is how we relate to authority. Mom negotiates. I'm not saying dad can't, but she leads in it. Mom negotiates. Dad goes, do it now. Why do I have to do that? Because I said so. See, I believe in Danny Silk's loving on purpose, teaching kids to be powerful, but I also believe that in the midst of that, that there is a tension. We need to keep this intentionally. We need to keep intentionally like, because I told you so. Like, it's important that we relate to authority and that we don't have to tell you why we want it done. Now, I don't mean that whole life has to be like that. I'm saying that a police officer doesn't have to tell you why he wants you to do that. He just needs to tell you to do it. And you relate to authority, you relate to teachers, you relate to people in authority, because your dad said, do it now. Well, I don't feel like doing it. I didn't ask you if you felt like doing it. Go up to your room until I talk to you. And what happens is, is that fathers bring this element discipline. Everybody lives in it, but it's the culture he creates this element of discipline. You should have the fear of God. In the absence of fatherhood, what is one of the greatest spiritual uh, uh, voids we have? The fear of God. People, we love love God. We're teaching people that God loves you. He wants to be your friend, but the other side of that is people lose sight of your friend is still God. There's still a hell. When you feminize society, you take away hell. Well, God, he's so kind and nice, he would never send people to hell. He doesn't send you there. He said, over my dead body will you go there. But some people still jump over his body and get there. He died so you wouldn't go to hell. He's done everything to keep you out of it. But listen, if you will to be there, it's a good point. Number three, Men lack confidence in their ability to lead and provide for a family because it's never been modeled for them. Therefore, they delay or reject marriage relationships. And men say things like this, I can't find a, can't find a woman. They're 40 years old like, what, have, you, have you dated? I can't find a, can't find a woman. <laughs> okay, now let me say this. I actually, did, I actually looked this up. There are 3.8 billion women on the planet right now. 3.8 billion. Okay, let me, let, me just, let me just tell you how many 3.8 billion is. If you took all the women in the world from the beginning of time up to 50 years ago, you would have more women on the planet today than all the women born from the beginning of time. This is like fishing at the hatchery. <laughs> cannot find find a woman. (laughs) Now, are men just inherently liars? They're just like, they're just lying. No, no, I I, I believe that men actually believe that. There's a great book out called Blink. How many of you read that book? It's a secular book and people, you know, they write me all the time like, you recommend this book and it's got cuss words in it. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, you know. (laughs) I don't even know how people live, you know. That's part of the feminized world, I guess. I shouldn't have said that. That was, that was even streaming. I apologize right now. Don't write me. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I mean, I mean people have cussed at my house. I mean, Kathy's working on it, but it, she's getting better. The book, the book Blink is the basic theory of the book Blink is that you know more in your subconscious than you know in your conscious mind. It's, it's really a great book. And we would say you know your spirit knows more than your conscious mind. But, so you have to change the terms a little bit, but the book is a really, really good book. And he cites several um, circumstances where people do things that they think they know why they do them because your, he said your conscious mind operates out of, uh, out of uh, uh, logic and reason. And your subconscious mind doesn't actually need logic and reason to actually believe it. So, so they did this study, on, and that you, the whole book is about different places they studied, and they asked people, why do you do this? And they say, this is why we do it. And then they study it, and they go, that's not why they do it at all. And they, they're talking about the power of the subconscious. And we would say the power of the spirit, the spirit of a man. They, they studied Ted Williams, and I assume Ted Williams is a, uh, evidently a great baseball player. Had one of the hard, uh, highest RBIs in, in the history of baseball. I don't watch baseball; it's kind of like watching the grass grow. As far as I'm concerned, it's like, like golf. You know, people are like I went played golf for exercise. I'm like, <laughs> 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 exercise. I, get, I took the garbage cans out. Then you know, it's like whatever. <laughs> if I successfully offended everyone, okay. <laughs> just want to make sure there's a balance in here. <laughs> they asked Ted Williams, how do you hit a baseball? How do, you hit, how do you hit so well? And he said, I watched the baseball into the bat. I watched the baseball into the bat. And they did all this study, and uh, they, they, they did put, you know, set up these really this, uh, uh, you know, flash cameras, fast, fast cameras, and, and they found that actually Ted doesn't actually see the baseball hit the bat at all. And their point they're making in this book, and you'd have to read it for the profound outcome of this this book, but the point that they're making is that you know more in your subconscious than you know in your conscious mind, but because you can't explain it, you come up with reasons why you do it. I don't think men can't find women. I just think they can't. They think they can't find women, and therefore they can't find women because they're not prepared for a woman. Now that's going to be in the next book, Blink book. It's gonna be called Blink 2.0, 2.0. Okay, um, the lack of fatherhood, uh, number four. Men invite boys into manhood through the rite of passage. The rite of passage is the process in which men acknowledge that a boy has become a man. Without the rite of passage, boys struggle growing up as they grow old. Girls experience the rite of passage through the, when, they, when they have their menstrual cycle. So because they have something that needs to happen, they need to figure out what to do about their menstrual cycle, women acknowledge you're a woman. Come in to womanhood. But in the absence of fathering, there is no rite of passage. You know, uh, the Jews have a rite of passage. The Africans often have a rite of passage. Like the African um, men uh, take the the boy out who's becoming a man. And he goes out and he, you know, kills a lion or brings back a carrot or, you know, something. (laughs) Something that everyone acknowledges that he's now a man. Consequently, fatherless men tend to be players instead of leaders. They elevate pleasure above Purpose, largely because they're ill-equipped for manhood, and the fear of failing paralyzes them. Number five, fatherless men relate to women as mothers and sisters, not as wives and lovers, because they've never observed how a husband relates to a wife. Consequently, they don't pursue lovers, they pursue mothers. Someone who will care for them, not a person they can provide, protect, and promote. In a fatherless society, authenticity is being redefined as being true to your feelings instead of true to your purpose. How many know being authentic doesn't mean I'm true to my feelings? My feelings change every day. As a matter of fact, if I had a friend who lied to me as much as my feelings, I'd never trust him. How I feel is not how I am. And let me say, let me be really clear: how I feel isn't who I am. But in a but in a but in a fatherless society. When you you exalt the feminine side then feelings are exalted and there's no balance of fatherhood so what do fathers teach men number one they teach them how to conquer their fears and not negotiate with their enemies how many know this whole thing of conquering we are more than conquerors This whole thing of fighting, how many understand that that when Paul Paul t- gave several illustrations. He talked about boxing, that no one boxes in a way that they're boxing the air. He talked about being a soldier, no soldier in active duty, and he talked about what a, how a soldier's attitude should be. He talked about winning a prize, running a race. How many of you know those are all things that fathers bring to a culture? This competitive spirit, this thing is, I must win, I must stop that, I must conquer that mountain, I must kill that thing, I must stop that thing. That's all what men bring to culture. Number two, uh, what do fathers teach men? They teach them to provide for their families. This gives men purpose, meaning, and identity. Uh, Acts chapter 10 is the story of the uh, sheet that came down with all the unclean animals in it. How many of you remember the story? What was the word of the Lord to Peter? Kill and eat. It wasn't eat. It was kill and eat. Kill and eat is a part of the ecosystem of manhood because they are tasked with providing substance for their families. But in a feminized world, provision is trumped by compassion and vegetarianism is the outcome. (laughs) That was a joke. It was funny. It It was just being funny. You know, hunters often say, I hunt for the meat. It's not true. I mean it probably was true, but it's not true anymore. Men and women don't hunt for the meat. I mean my wife's coming back, she's like, look what I killed. <laughs> like, how much meat is there? I don't know, I killed it. <laughs> like, well, we shouldn't kill I mean what I'm getting at is this: is that <laughs> people train for four years for the Olympics. Minimum. They train for four years. And what do they get if they win? A medal. People are like, a gold medal. It ain't real gold. I looked it up. You trained for four years to get a medal. And that's totally rational. How many of you climb mountains? You like to hike. How many? I'm going to climb a mountain. Why? Well, the reason is. You better get in touch with your spirit because the reason you think is probably not the reason you're doing it. You are created to conquer. You're created to be more than a conqueror. You're created to climb mountains. You're created like a gazelle, you know. (laughs) Number three, what do fathers teach sons and daughters? Fathers teach men to compete for the prize, fight for their promises, and build for the future. This is how men learn to fight for and aggressively pursue the women of their dreams. Think of Song of Solomon. How does Song of Solomon begin, do you remember? Song of Solomon begins, some of you are like, no, (laughs) is that in the Bible? Song of Solomon begins with the woman, you know, she's in the bedroom and their door's locked. Am I helping anyone? And he's like, knock, knock, and what does she say? Come in? No, she says, oh, I'm already in bed. I've taken off my shoes. I've washed my feet. And he leaves. What is she doing? See, feminized culture. Nobody even knows. (laughs) She's playing hard to get. She's going, I'm already in bed. He's like, all right, I'm I'm leaving, you know. Look look at Song of Solomon chapter two. You guys are so serious. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Song of Solomon chapter two. Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming. He's climbing on the mountains. He's leaping on the hills. My beloved's like a gazelle. He's like a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind the wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. He's a peeping Tom. What is she doing? She tells him, I'm already in bed. and He leaves, and what is she doing? She's trying to stimulate that thing that needs to win. The thing that needs to climb, to, to, to fight for something important. He's like a gazelle. He's like, he's, he's running over the mountains. He's jumping over walls. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. He's, he's pursuing her. He's the man. A woman playing hard to get should inspire the masculine need to win, to compete for the prize, to climb the castle wall. But in a feminized world, a woman has to put a ladder against the castle wall, followed by a safety rope, and then wait at the bottom of the step to show him the way up. I can't even tell you, like, I want to ask this girl out and she said no. Man, she didn't mean no. Like, no means yes. And fathers also teach men when no does mean no. Some of the girls came up after I taught this in school, to like, please tell the guy that's pursuing me that no actually means no. <laughs> I'm saying this is the love dance that we are called to do. The woman says, I was born to be pursued. I was born to be adored. And he says, I was born to climb something. I was born to kill something. I was born to apprehend something. When she says, not now, he goes, how about tomorrow? How about the next day? When can we go? Hello, I'm still knocking. I'm knocking, I'm seeking. I'm, I, I'm asking. I'm knocking, seeking, asking. Like, that's what God told me to do now. Give me a date. <laughs> I, 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 there are no women out there that like me. No, 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 no. This is the dance. Learn the dance of men and women. Number four, men help others discover their identity. When children are small, they ask, what? What's that? How many of you have small children in your house? You have them in the nursery right now, and you have a break. (laughs) What's that? What's that? What's that? What's What's the next question they ask? Why? What's that? What's that? We do that for how long? I don't even know anymore. Months, right? What's that? It's a podium. What's that? That's a Bible. What's that? And then finally, you're like, And they're like, why? (laughs) So I can put my Bible up there. Why? So I could teach, you know, pretty soon, like, go ask your mother. (laughs) But when children hit puberty, they ask another question. What's the question they ask when they hit puberty? Who am I? See, in the roles that we play, father and mother both involved. I get it. But when they're asking what? Why? what why mom's nurturing capacity is pouring into children dads too but mother's the primary identity giver those first three years, teaching, nurturing, creating the peacemaker, compassion, intuitions, all that's important It's happening. Dad's also bringing it. But how many understand when they hit puberty, dad comes to the forefront and he begins to go, this is who you are. This is what you must pursue. And when we're sending kids off to universities four, six, eight years, they graduate and they don't even want to do the thing that they, gra- they, they spent eight years learning. We think if you learn enough, certainly you'll know what to do. I'm like, no, that comes from mothers. But fathers are leading the way going, this is what you're called. I see this in your eyes. If you train up a child in the way they should go when they get old, they won't depart from it. And dad goes, this is what I had. I had a dream about you last night. This is what you're doing. And how many of you know that when you work by your mother and father in the fields and later on in the industrial world, you work by your father, your mother, you work together all day, your identity came naturally. And I don't mean it always works perfectly. We know it takes a village to raise a child. I'm just trying to give some distinctions. Dad isn't mom, and mom isn't dad. But today we're like, you can have two moms in your house. You don't need a dad. You can have two dads. You don't need a mom. Men and women aren't the same. Fathers and mothers are not the same. We don't play the same roles. So I want to end with this. So wh- what's the solution? Well, first of all, I love this Psalm 68, 5. A father of the fatherless, a judge of the widow is God in his holy habitation. You know, probably there's lots of people watching by Bethel TV, lots of people. In, I mean, 40% of you potentially did not have a father at home. 51% of all children right now are raised in a fatherless home. Not only with, were they uh, um, uh, did they come about through wedlock, but they're actually 51% of our children don't have a father in their home. I'm not even talking about their father. I'm talking about a father. This is, this is a pandemic. If this was a disease, whole, whole, whole cities would be wiped out if this was a disease. What's the solution? Well, first of all, I want to say God is a father to the fatherless. He's also a husband to the widow. How many know God can make up the difference in your life? God made the difference up in my life. I have Bill in my life, I have Bill Dairyberry. God took, because of my hunger for, you know, you got to break the orphan spirit off you, right? It's like, how do I find a father? It's like, well, be a son and a daughter, don't be an orphan. You have, to, you have to be become ready to receive from fathers and mothers. But God's the answer. The second thing I want to say is this, is that, and I said it just a few minutes ago, half hour ago, there is a promise keeper's type revolution coming to America, and I believe that millions, millions of of men are going to become fathers. I mean, they have have already have children, but they are going to learn how to be fathers and have this whole vision of the rite of passage, like almost like knighting men. You are a man. You have, you have, you you know, it's that whole thing of let's have some sort of a, I don't know if you want to call it ritual, but something where men acknowledge that boys are now men, and also that they teach them the skills of manhood. And that's not gonna happen just in a stadium. I see a whole movement happening. And I'm not the only one, by the way. I understand that other people are prophesying this too. Plato said this, he said, "Get, let me handle the music of one generation and I will control Rome. And remember, he's a Greek. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 25:20. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Did you hear what Solomon just said? He said, when you sing the wrong songs, you uncover people. I got to speak in, uh, at Bethel, to the Bethel music team uh, this week. And while I was speaking, I had some other stuff prepared, but out, as I was speaking, I felt the Lord say that out of this church, out of this movement, is going to come a label. I called it secular, then I changed it. It's going to be like a kingdom label that's going to fill the airwaves of, of the secular world with kingdom songs, hear me, kingdom songs that are going to cover the nation. See, if a bad song can cut uncover a nation, how many know a good song can cover a nation? And I believe that God is going to sing people back into a revolution. Andrew, Andrew Fletcher was the commissioner of the Scottish Parliament in 1707. He said this. Remember, he's the commissioner of the Scottish Parliament. He's a lawmaker. And he said this. He said, let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. There was a... Uh, in, um, after the Second World War, the Russians, uh, of course, defeated the Germans, and, and, and they drove them out of the Baltic states, Lithuania, uh, Estonia and Latvia. And the Russians, they drove the Russians out. And after the, we, you know, obviously beat the Germans in the war, the Russians were coming back to communize and colonize again the Baltic states. The Baltic states are very small nations. They have very, have not lots of, uh, um, not a very big military. There was no way they could have held off the Russians. And so they're like, what should we do? And spontaneously, from Estonia all the way. To, uh, all the way to, to Latvia, they spontaneously came to the shores of the Baltic Sea where the Russians were coming in to, re, to retake control of their nation. They grabbed hands and they began to sing. Yeah. Wow. They began to sing. It was called the Singing Revolution. And when the Russian soldiers saw the Lithuanians and the Estonians and the Latvians singing along the beach. Holding hands for hundreds of miles, they turned around and went home. It's called the Singing Revolution. During slavery, they sang songs of deliverance in the Underground Railroad, and those songs were the, the slaves were not allowed to talk, they were not allowed to learn to read or write, but they learned to sing. And Harriet Tubman, who led the Underground Railroad, she gave instructions to the slaves through writing songs to tell them what time and where they were meeting. (laughs) They were called Songs of Deliverance. And I believe the Lord is raising up Songs of Deliverance where people are going to learn how to come out of these dysfunctions and how to be fathers and mothers, and he's going to restore our culture. Would you stand, please? You know, uh, when in 1964, right after the Beatles were introduced to America, the Russians, who were still behind, you know, the walls of communism, the wall had yet to fall. The Russians said, "We don't want Beatles music in Russia because if people hear happy people, they'll tear down this wall from the inside out." And so, you could not buy a Beatles album in Russia except for on the black market, in which they sold for $100 for one Beatles album. Now, you got to think, of they sold for $100 then, that'd be $500 today, because they were afraid of the music of a generation. The Lord's going to raise up another sound. I, I, I don't think it's a new sound, but it's a new song. It's a new song. Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. For more content, visit moralrevolution.com and follow us on social media, pursuing God's design for sexuality.